All I have is Christ. What a tremendous truth. Um, God's word is proclaimed, not just in, our, in the preaching of his words, but in the songs that we sing. And I so appreci- I'm just so appreciative of our, our team, our, our music team, and their preparation and all that they do as they, pre- as they help to pre- just prepare our hearts, my heart, to open up God's word and to hear um, what he says. And I appreciate all those who minister to our young people too. Isn't it neat to see all of our young people um, standing in front of us and um, singing with us in their songs? And Kim and I get to hear them um, back in the classes on Wednesday when they're practicing those songs and we're just in this little room and the, it's just the music echoes throughout the room and it's really, really exciting. So thanks to Carly and thank you to the folks who um, even now uh, minister to our children in the nursery um, and in the five and under um, so that we can um, come together and just spend some time together looking at God's Word. Um, well, turn in, your, turn in um, your study Bibles to the epistle of 1 John. Um, it's real easy to get to. You just go to the very end of the Bible, find Revelation, just wander backwards through Jude, and you come to the three epistles, and you're there at First John before you know it. Um, and so turn, if you will, um, to First John. Um, I think it would, I would be remiss if I didn't start out my message as I do every message, which is to remind myself and to remind you that all Scripture is inspired of God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when we think of the truth of God that is proclaimed, the question is, God's truth is brought to my attention. Do I understand the truth as it's being proclaimed? Reproof reproof is just identifying sin. This is where my heart, this is where my mind and my heart intersect. And it says, what am I going to do with this truth? That's reproof. What am I going to do with this truth? Correction is just a change of course. We're changing course. We're saying based upon the truth of God's word, based upon the confrontation of what, how I need to change, man, I make that change. I make that uh, correction in my life. And then we rinse and repeat. repeat. That's training in righteousness. And so that's what we do. As we sing God's word, as we proclaim God's word, as we encourage one another in God's word, we are training and being trained in righteousness. And Peter tells us that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's only one proper interpretation of God's word. It's not what it means to me. It's not what it means to you. It's what is the author intending to communicate to us. And so let's go to the Lord and ask him for that, to illumine our hearts and our minds so we might understand his truth as we look here in First John. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time um, that we have uh, to come together to worship you um, in song, uh, in the teaching of your word, in prayer, in, in the taking of communion together. And so our ask is that your Holy Spirit um, would fill our hearts and our minds and take away the distractions from us so we might hear the word that you have for us and that we might apply that in our lives today and throughout the week. May we go from this place changed because of your word and because of the person 
of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Our focus this morning is going to be in chapter 2 of 1 John. We'll be looking particularly at verses 15 uh, through 17. Um, but just for context, because context means everything, I'm going to go and back up, and we're going to start in chapter 1 and read. So look in your Bibles, if you will, with me, and let's read, starting in uh, 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made, made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing... You knew no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. This is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The main point of our message this morning, coming from verses 15 through 17, is this. The affections of my heart, the affections of my heart cannot be split between God and this world. Therefore, do not love the world or the things in the world. It was a general review just of what we've read in the greater passage. John's writing to an audience primarily of believers. However, some false teachers have crept into this body and they're making truth claims that John says are just flat out lies. John's purpose in writing this epistle to his readers, to us, is twofold. It's to affirm the believer's relationship with Christ, the possessors of eternal life. We can know, John says, that we have eternal life. John says in, his close, in the closing chapter, in chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's to affirm, to affirm who we are in Christ. And secondly, to expose, to expose those who make a false profession of faith and are teaching false doctrine. They do not possess eternal life. And their lifestyle, their lifestyle gives evidence of that. John calls them liars. Basically, the secular worldview of that time, the Greek philosophy of this time, had infiltrated, infiltrated the church. The Greek philosophy taught that there was a separation between body and spirit. They taught that the body was evil. Hence, because the body is material and dies, the evil in the body is inconsequential. However, because the spirit was separate from the body, the spirit could achieve the sinlessness and perfection. Therefore, their false teachers had brought this philosophy into the church, claiming that they were without sin, all the while walking in darkness. John says... That's nonsense. That's a lie. That is not what you have been taught. This teaching polluted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it. It denied the depravity of man. It denies the sinlessness of Christ in his humanity. And it denies the necessity of the cross and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross in my place. And it denies the physical resurrection of Christ. John reiterates that Jesus Christ is fully man. A fact which he says, we, a multiple of eyewitnesses, are eyewitnesses to. John reiterates that sin is a reality in the life of every human being. I cannot say that I walk in the light and deny the reality of sin in my life, because that's what light does. It exposes sin. John reiterates that Jesus Christ, in his humanity, lived a sinless life. He identifies Christ as Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is sinless. John reiterates that Jesus Christ alone satisfies God's wrath upon sinful humanity. He is, John says, propitiation. For our sins. John reiterates that for those who are in Christ, walking in the light of God's truth, and walking in the light of God's truth, those who are walking in the light will confess sin. And John says, do not abandon the truths, 
that you have been taught. Constantly hear him referring back to that which they've heard from the beginning. Do not listen to the false teachers, John says, and do not walk in darkness as they walk. False teachers have infiltrated this body, and John makes a clear distinction. He draws a clear line between a false profession of faith and a true profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And John says, you can tell, you can tell, we can know, he says, by their walk. For the false teachers, for false professors of faith, there is a lifestyle of sin. But for children of God, for the true children of God, there is confession of sin in our lives. There's a walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. And by this we know that we have come to know him, John says, if we keep his commandments. We read that in the opening parts of chapter 2. And John says our walk is to mirror the walk of Christ in submission and obedience to our Father, our Heavenly Father. In, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 2, John says, And by this we know that we are in Him, in Christ, if we abide in Him and walk in the same way in which He walked. And finally, it's a walk that is characterized by a love for one another. In chapter 4 of this epistle, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, John says. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's a love we are to have for one another is the love of God. It's a love that's one way. It's a one-way love. It's unconditional. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that's empowered by the person of Jesus Christ as I abide in him. And it's a love that's modeled after Christ. We walk in the same way in which he walked in love. And it's a love that puts, in doing that, puts Christ on display for all to see. Can we know that we are in Christ? Can we have that assurance? John says yes. John draws again this fine line in the sand, and it's one that's expressed by the affections of our heart. We either know God, it's a relationship that's expressed in a walk of obedience and a, and a walk in love for one another, or we do not know God. A void in the heart that's expressed by a love for self and a lifestyle of sin in open rebellion to God. In the, in, the, in the few verses that precede our text this morning, in verses 12 through 14, John pauses to give his readers this assurance. No doubt John's writing to believers that he himself has discipled. And, so, and John has witnessed their walk. And so he can say this. He says, he assures them, he says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That is for the glory of God. 
And John assures them, you know Christ. He says, you know him. And John assures them that they are overcomers because of who they are in Christ. And so as we come to our passage this morning, verses 15 through 17, John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. We just say that again. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Oh, just as studying this, it's like, boom, okay, that, that, that is don't love the world or the things in the world. Let me make just three quick observations before we, before we dig into our text. Let me, let me just make, first of all, this is, um, this is the first command that John's given in this apostle. And it is in the form, I believe, of reproof. This is what reproof looks like. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the reproof. Up to this point, John has reminded his believers of the truth that they have been taught from the beginning. False teaching and false doctrine have led some to live a lifestyle that's not reflective of who they are in Christ. And so John says, stop it. Stop acting in a way that's inconsistent with who you are in Christ. It's a reproof. Second observation is this. False teaching always leads to wrong living. Always leads to wrong living. We can't think that we can tolerate false teaching and listen to it and hear it, and it's not going to affect what we do. John says this in chapter 5 of the same epistle. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. If you are a child of God, a lifestyle of sin is not consistent with who you are in Christ. What we believe to be true, we call it orthodoxy, right? You've heard that word. What we believe to be true, our orthodoxy, always expresses itself in what we do. Our orthopraxy, regardless of our perfection. Orthodoxy always leads to our orthopraxy. What we believe and what we do. But what I do and the affections of my heart are determined by what I believe to be true. This is why Paul is teaching is the first item of benefit of having the inspired word of God that we just talked about in 2 Timothy 3.16. Without pro- There's an order to that. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Without proper teaching, there's no reproof, and there's no correction, and there's no training in righteousness. This is why we make every... This is why I make every effort in this church body to guard the truth of God's Word. Our involvement in our personal Bible study, our involvement in our group Bible studies, the expository teaching from God's Word, from this, pul- from this pulpit, is of paramount importance. And it leads to my third observation. Just in general, over, this, over the whole text so far, reproof always follows teaching. I think I've already, I've, I've kind of made that point. The order is important. Dads, listen to me, dads, okay? Because I, I think about this often. Reprove a child, reprove your child without proper instruction, and you'll frustrate and confuse your child. Paul says you'll anger them. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. 
So reprove them without proper instruction, and you're going to anger and frustrate your children. It's easier. I know this. It's just easier to bark out the reproof. It's easier. It takes time for thoughtful and thoughtful planning to teach our children. But the benefit of the right order of teaching, reproof, correction, and training righteousness has eternal benefits. And notice this, all, all that has proceeded in our text this morning, John's reminders of the truth, um, that have already been, are already those that have been proclaimed. And he also affirms these, these people who are in Christ. So again, fathers, here, he, follow the example of John as he writes here in this epistle. Always proceed your reproof with instruction and affirmation. Right? That's what we see in the few verses is to follow our text. There's that affirmation. And then one last note. Instruction is always repetitive. John's instructions here to these believers are nothing new. He continually says, that which we have heard from the beginning. You know, as I read, as I read over this epistle, as I study this epistle, I can't help but see how John's repeating himself over and over and over again. And if it sounds like I'm preaching the same sermon every time we come and we go, we go to 1 John over and over again, it's because the truths are being repeated over and over and over again. Apparently, repetition is part of instruction. Now, I don't know what it was like for you when you were young. But I can remember one phrase from my dad when I was young, and I wasn't listening. He would say, how many times do I have to tell you? (laughs) Am I the only one? I heard that. And you know what? Apparently, many times. Many times. Because repetition is a part of instruction. Paul says it like this in Philippians. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it's safe for you. Repetition is part of instruction. And so, as we come to our text, John's words here are words of reproof. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The word love here, agape love. The same love that is used when he's talking about our love of God and our love for one another. It's an affection of the heart. The verb tense is in the present tense, so it's ongoing. So here is do not love. This is this is a do not do not well really what he's saying, stop loving the world. Don't continue loving the world and the things of the world. And the world, the word cosmos, it can mean different things depending on the context in which it's used. But in this case, it's more than just the physical characteristics of the planet on which we live. Here, a world, as John defines it, and God are antithesis to one another. They are as different as light and darkness. Because if anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. I think John's using the word in general here, world, is just that fallen humanity... Hear me on this. It's that fallen humanity whose values, beliefs, and morals are in conflict with and in open rebellion against the person and character of God. 
to fallen humanity whose values, beliefs, and morals are in conflict with and in open rebellion against the person of God. It's a belief system. It's a belief system that is anti-Christ. It is opposed to Christ. Now, everyone has a belief system by which they live and governs how they live. For those who walk in the light, we're governed by the light. God is light. God defines reality. For those who walk in darkness, they're governed by darkness. John says, darkness is the absence of truth. And those who walk in darkness, he calls them liars and says they don't practice the truth. And so, the belief system is this worldview. Now, if you've heard me before, I'll remind you, that worldview, the worldview is answered in four questions of life. Who am I? Origin. Why am I here? Purpose. What's wrong with this world? Morality. And what can be done to make it right? Hope. Hope. True believers, true followers of Jesus Christ, operate from a biblical worldview. And here's the biblical worldview. We'll start with the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview answers the question, who am I? I'm a special creation of God, uniquely created in the image of God. Why am I here? Why am I here? To glorify God. As an image bearer of God, I am designed to reflect his character for his glory. If you ask our young people, they know this. Who made you? What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. They've got it. They've got it. That's origin. That's purpose. What's wrong with this world from a biblical worldview? Me. Me and my sin. I am the problem. I am a God-hater and a self-lover, and I deserve an eternal separation from God for eternity. What can be done to make it right from a biblical worldview? We say this, only the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in, the sinless, it's in his sinless life, Jesus Christ alone is qualified to satisfy the holy wrath of God against my sin by dying on the cross in my place. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives testimony to his having conquered death and my sins being forgiven who I am. In Christ. The secular world answers the questions as follows Who am I? I'm a mistake. I'm that climbed out of the primordial slime of nothingness. That is the worldview. No God, no absolutes, no sovereign ruler of the universe. Why am I here? Self gratification and self actualization. I am here to collect all that I can because he who wins with he who dies with the most toys wins. Right? That's the philosophy. And I try to and I try to keep others from taking it from me. I come from nothing and I'm going to nothing. That is the world secular world view. And what's wrong with this world? Well, it's you. And it's other people like you. And boy, do you hear this on the TV every day. The secular worldview says, I am a victim and you are the oppressor. You are my 
problem. My problem is outside of me. That is the secular worldview. What can be done to make it right? We need more education and we need more laws, more government, more laws. If I can get you to think like me, we can educate ourselves into utopia. That's the secular worldview. And what we really need are more laws to protect my pursuit, and my self-gratification, and my self-glorification. That's what is needed. The secular worldview is one that's taught in our governments, and it's one that's on the TVs and the media all around us. It's what That is what we hear. John says... Stop loving the world. Stop nurturing a relationship with the belief system that is opposed to Christ. My heart's affections cannot agree with or be identified with the values, beliefs, morals of a secular worldview. Why? Because a secular worldview has as its foundation an opposition to the person of God and a hatred for the person of Jesus Christ. The biblical worldview and the secular worldview are incompatible. I cannot love the world and I cannot love God at the same time. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so John identifies these three things that are from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Two familiar passages I want to read to you. And if you have the handout there on the back of the handout, that'll help you a little bit. And both passages are one whereby the prince of this world, Satan, promises, presents, um, the, the prince of this world, Satan, presents to Adam and Eve, and then later presents these same lies to Christ in the desert. So let's read um, in Genesis chapter 3. I've got it right here. Let's just, just read this it's on the back of your handout. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve traded. In that, at that moment, they traded the glory of God for the things of this world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. They acted in rebellion to God, and when they did so, they plunged all of humanity into sin. Using the same lies, Satan tempts Jesus with the same things in the world. In Matthew 4, we read this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, that is Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, third temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came, and they were ministering to him. And so John highlights three characteristics of a world system that act out in open rebellion to God. The first is the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, a longing and a craving to satisfy, here's the definition, hear me out, is to satisfy the physical desires outside of the person and provisions of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she ate. Eve desired and longed for a food that was outside of what God had provided. God had provided an abundance of food for them to meet their physical needs in the garden. Only one was prohibited, and she desired that one fruit that God had forbidden. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he that is Christ was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Lust of the flesh is the pursuit of the temporal in disregard for the eternal. Okay, so if you're following the handout, here it is. As simple as this, it's the temporal versus the eternal. That's the choice you're faced with when you're faced with lust of the flesh, the temporal versus the eternal. The lust of the flesh says that the temporal is all that matters. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, it is written, God has revealed his word to us. Man shall not live by bread alone. Yes, Jesus was hungry. 40 days without food? Jesus was hungry. Adam and Eve had an abundance of food. It was only one that was forbidden. Jesus had gone 40 days without food. Hunger is a natural desire, physical desire of the flesh. It's part of God's creative design. Hunger is the body's way of asking for nutrition, the nutrition that's necessary to sustain our physical functioning. However, listen to this. Satisfaction of the natural desires is not to be taken outside of the context of its eternal design. Let me say it again. The satisfaction of our natural 
desires is not to be taken outside the context of its eternal design, which is to glorify God. Obedience to the will of his Father was the greater purpose unto which his natural desire to eat was, was submitted. That's what it was for Christ. It was simple, simple for him. Jesus says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Obedience to the written word of God fulfills our created purpose, which is to glorify God. Eating bread is a necessary function to sustain life. However, it sustains a life that was designed for a greater purpose, to bring glory to God. Think of this. When we think of, when we think of lust of the flesh, and we think of lust of that, when we think of lust of the flesh, one of the things we most often think about are, are sexual sins, right? And certainly it's true that, and sexual lust is used many times in Scripture as a manifestation of the deeds of the flesh. And yet the, simple, and yet the same principle applies in all areas of our lives. God is, God is, think about this when we think about sexual lust. God has created the adult physical body with sexual desires. Is there any denying that? There's no denying that. And these sexual desires function to fulfill God's mandate to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to cover the earth with image bearers. However, satisfaction of this physical, natural desire is not to be taken outside the context of God's created design. God has established boundaries under which this mandate is to be fulfilled. And that is within the monogamous relationship between one man and one woman inside the covenant relationship of marriage. It's this covenant of marriage that brings glory to God because it puts the person and character of God on display. It reflects the image of the triune God. It displays, this is what oneness, for the world to see a marriage, its function and submitting to God, it displays to them what oneness looks like. And it puts on display the love, the sacrificial love that Christ has for his church. And the sexual any any sexual relationship outside God's design denies the eternal and simply feeds the temporal. The temporal versus the eternal. Sexual lust is the temporal is all that matters. And so the lust of the flesh is the placement of the temporal over the eternal. It's the here and now over that which is eternal. The same applies in looking at a new car, whether I'm thinking about a new house that I want to buy, paint color I want to change, in the living room, a new kitchen, just fill in the blank. The lust of the flesh. The problem is not the things. It's not the things. The problem is the desire for the things. It's a matter of the heart. The question is not, what do you own? The question is, what owns you? Where is your heart? What are the affections of my heart? It is a love for God. Is it a love for God? Or is it a love for the things of this world? John says, stop doing this. Stop putting the temporal over the eternal. 
Such a lust and a longing is not from God, John says. It's not of the world. Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A heart's affection is to be for God. And it's a love that's to be expressed in our obedience to God's word. And it's a love that is expressed in our love for one another. Because only God's word and only people are eternal. Everything else is temporal. Everything else will burn. The second characteristic of the things in the world is this. John says it's the lust of the eyes, desire of the eyes. It's a longing or a craving to possess something for the glory of self. The lust of the eyes puts want, self-want, self-want over worship, over God-worship. The contrast is want versus Worship. The lust of the eyes separates the thing created from its creator. The lust of the eyes elevates the want of self over the worship of God. The lust of the eyes attributes value to the creation and not to the creator. The lust of the eyes desires to take possession of the creation at the expense of the creator and, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight a delight to the eyes and the temptation with Christ and again the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of, of the world and their glory you know one of the most incredible gifts the physical gifts that God has given us is our sight because in our sight we behold the beauty of God's Creation. I remember um, years ago, we took our family out west, and we were in, in Canada, and we were driving on the Icefield Highway through the Canadian Rockies. We're driving along, and I'm driving. Kim's with me. The kids are in the back, and I'm going, oh, look at that. Look at that. Can you Every turn around the highway was like one beauty after the next. It was indescribable, and God has given us eyes not to want with, but to worship with, to worship with. And yet the problem of the sinful heart is that we replace worship with one. Again, in reference to sexual immorality, we think of a man lusting after a woman, being captured by her beauty and desiring the sexual relationship outside of God's design. In God... In God's creative order, God made the woman as the more beautiful creature. Am I right about that? I think we all can say yes to that. But just like a beautiful flower in the field or any other part of God's creation, a woman's beauty should, be, should drive a man to worship God and not want for himself. That's it. Guys, you want to know the, you want the key to overcoming that kind of sexual lust? 
Worship the Creator. Instead of wanting the creature, teach yourself to worship. Don't deny the beauty. Worship the God who created the beauty of all things. Again, the temptation is to replace worship with one. The question is, is my heart filled with worship for the creator or a want for self? All of God's creation is designed to bring him glory. It is sin. Stop doing it, John says. It's sin to replace the worship of God with the want of self. Paul says it this way about the depraved man and the sinful heart, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do not love the things of the world, John says, or the things in the world. Thirdly, third characteristic in the world is this. It's the boastful pride of life. To elevate my will over God's will. That's what it is. My will versus God's will. To elevate my will over God's will. My way over God's way. My glory over God's glory. The ultimate act of rebellion against God is to elevate self. It's the boastful pride of life. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to be their own authority. He says, the serpent says to the woman, he says, you'll... You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan tells Eve, you can be your own God, you can define your own reality, you can be your own standard of right and wrong. Self over God. Pride can take many forms. But at its root, hear me, at its root, it's the elevation of self over anything, any and all things. And I was, I was looking because I was thinking about Christ and how he responded to the enemy about, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. And I'm like, how does that relate to this temptation? This, this temptation. And so, and so I was looking, and believe it or not, grumbling is an act of pride. Grumbling is an act of pride. In Exodus 17, the children of Israel wandering in the desert. And, and they, they come to a place, and there's no water for the people to drink. Exodus 17. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people of God Test God by demanding that he meet their needs on their terms, thereby placing their will above God's will. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says it like this. He says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and, 20, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble. Grumbling is an act of pride. 
Satan says to Christ, throw yourself down off this pinnacle for all to see. Exalt yourself before men. Take all the glory as a shortcut to the cross. Do it without the cross. Take the glory without going to the cross. Jesus says, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The boastful pride of life seeks the glory of self by placing my will over God will, God's will. I mean, how many times in my own life do I want to do things by my own power and for my own glory instead of first going to God in prayer and seeking his will as it has been revealed in his scripture? Think about social media. Think about Facebook. It's designed to feed the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Look at me. Here are all the things that I glory in. My job, my vacation, my family, my house, my car, my health, my, 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 my this, my that. And yet we're to live in complete submission to the will of God. Jesus prayed to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. And Paul said, Paul said, I boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. John says, do not love the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, it is from the world. Quickly, two reasons that a child of God must stop and cannot love the world or the things in the world. First is obvious, because we cannot love God and we cannot love the world. They are antithesis to one another. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. In the same way that light and darkness cannot occupy the same space, so the love of God and the love of the world cannot occupy my heart. And there's no gray area. John doesn't give a gray area for that. Jesus makes it clear that we cannot love God and we cannot love the world. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and this world. Two, reason number two, the world's passing away along with its desires. When Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back, the world as we know it will be destroyed with fire. John describes this in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had all passed away. How then shall we live? Well, in these few short verses, John tells us, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, in chapter 5, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We are to live by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're, the guys are, on Thursdays, the guys are getting together um, to study um, the book of Hebrews. 
And the writer of Hebrews argues for the superiority of Christ over all things. Then in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews gives one example after the other of those who have put their faith, their trust in God. Not trusting in the temporal, but trusting in God and that which is eternal. Noah, the writer says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. God's will, not my will. Abraham, Abraham, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he had not seen, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations to designer and builder of God, a worship of God over self-want. Moses, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, to the eternal, the eternal over the temporal. All these, the writer says, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Each of these witnesses chose the eternal over the temporal. They chose the worship of the Creator over the want of self, and they chose God's will over their own will. They saw the invisible. They walked by faith in God, who always keeps His promises and knew ever and never disappoints. John says, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Songwriter, the songwriter says this. I love this song. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not, is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Why? Why? Because I rejoice in my Redeemer Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Two wonders here that I confess my worth, and yet by my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And so I rejoice in my Redeemer Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone.